0: Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 255, and today's guest is Rob May, founder and CTO of Dianthus. I feel like this interview was long overdue, as I've known Rob for a long time. I probably first met him at one of the tech events in Boston, maybe Web Innovators Group or something like that. But it was during a resurgence of the tech industry in that region where a new crop of entrepreneurs were building companies, and Rob's company, Backupify, was one of the hot companies in the Boston tech scene. Backupify had raised funding from top investors like First Round Capital, Avalon Ventures, General Catalyst, Lowercase Capital, and top angel investors like Dharmesh Shah, Chris Saka, and Jason Calacanis. It was a big deal because he chose to build his company in Boston instead of Silicon Valley or New York City, which really helped him make a splash coming from Kentucky. Since having a successful exit with Backupify, Rob has gone on to make a major impact to not only the Boston tech scene, but to the tech industry at large as both an entrepreneur and investor. His latest company is called Dianthus, the world's only AI-first e-commerce company, which is acquiring small to medium-sized brands and helping them grow faster with a common AI platform that includes not just new technologies, but new AI-centric workflows, processes, and ways of working. The company just announced an $11.5 million seed round of funding led by PJC, Underscore, and Jason Calacanis. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics like the use of AI in the areas that Rob finds the most interesting in terms of use cases, Rob's early professional career out of school, and a look at how he got into blogging in the very early days, including how it has helped him as an entrepreneur, the story of Backupify, a backup cloud company that was started in 2008 for backing up Salesforce and Google Apps, which was later acquired by Datto his experience as an investor, first as an angel, which includes some amazing advice on how to get started as an angel investor, and then his experience as a venture partner at PJC, a deep dive into the creation of his latest company, Dianthus, and how they are leveraging AI as a competitive advantage, advice for hiring when building out your company, and so much more. Okay, quick side note. This week's episode is sponsored by Market Muse, a content intelligence platform that sets the standard for content quality. Their AI-powered software enables companies to create predictably better content at scale that increases traffic and engagement, improves productivity, and drives revenue. Get more out of your content with packages starting at just $0 a month. Plus, you can get 20% off the Market Muse standard plan by using our code FIZZ20, that's fizz two zero at checkout. Go to Market Muse to get started. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Rob. Rob, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me, Keith.
0: I'm excited to talk to you because I think this is like a podcast in the making that should have been done a long time ago. You and I go way back. I remember when you were starting Backupify and you you know, raised capital from General Catalyst, and it was kind of like almost like the re-emergence of the Boston tech scene. Backupify was one of those companies that was kind of like making a huge splash of leveraging the cloud in the early days. So we're going to talk about that. You've done so much beyond Backupify, so we've got a lot to talk about. But to kick things off, you've been very deep in the world of AI. So since I have you know someone who is just you know really thinking about this deeply and on so many levels as an investor or starting companies, like where is this world of ai like companies if they're startups they might say oh we of course use ai it's almost like a buzzword right but where is the state of that industry and like what are some of the more interesting use cases that are actually applicable that are real
1: yeah it's so interesting because you you have this like simultaneous underhyping and overhyping of ai right it's like everybody thinks about you know building generally intelligent machines and and that kind of stuff is like really far away Um, and a lot of the use cases that people want from AI is really far away, but if you look at sort of basic automation and basic prediction models, there's so much we can do that's underapplied and it's underapplied because it's, um, you know, there's not always data sets to do it. And some of the trends that are driving tech right now are actually counter to AI and, uh, and make it harder to build and deploy AI solutions. And, um, and so part of the reason we started Dianthus, which we'll get into, is like just this idea that um, there was lots of opportunity to go in and apply AI to e-commerce companies by acquiring them and making them work a certain way, rather than trying to build and sell them a tool that they would probably misuse. So to give you an example of like one thing that we did with our the very first company we acquired, uh, it was called Cuddle Clones. They had a product where you upload a picture of your pet, they will airbrush out the background so you just have the head and they will print those on a pair of pajamas right for you and so you can have your your dog's face on your pajamas kids love it um and we had and it cost them three dollars per pair of pajamas to airbrush out the heads so we built a machine learning model that'll do that and the company had tried before we we acquired them to do it but again you know not having the expertise and the resources and particularly with machine learning models to know Hey, this is doing okay. Should I keep going? Is it likely to get better? Like managing some of these machine learning projects is difficult, and uh, and so yeah, so it like that one application will drop about seven hundred thousand dollars to the bottom line of the company this year.
0: That is amazing.
1: Has a big impact. Yeah, and then this is like a six week project.
0: Yeah, and it's real. It's real tech. It works. Does its job. Yeah, it's not just applying some overly used technology. Yeah.
1: Yeah. There's definitely a lot of people out there that are doing sort of like, you know, some basic data science, you know, you're, you're, you're running a simple regression and you're calling it machine learning. And, uh, that's not the term that I would use, but, um, but there are legitimately a lot of really interesting opportunities out there.
0: Yeah. All right. So we got a lot to talk about. So let's dive into your background. Like where did you grow up? What were you like as a child? (laughs)
1: like a lot of people, I think they got into tech. I was a nerd as a child, right? I loved, uh. I love computers. I love math. Um, I grew up in uh, Louisville, Kentucky and um, went to high school, played basketball, right? Was was pretty active with that. Uh, and then went off to the University of Kentucky. Um, you know, it's so funny being up here in Boston where you know, people went to much better schools uh, than I did. But um, like, I never even thought to like, I, you know, I had good test scores and everything else. I never even thought to apply to a good school. I just thought I, I applied to schools based on like their sports teams and the weather and <laughs> went to Kentucky. I had a great time. You know, they won two national basketball titles while I was there and, uh, uh, you know, got, got a decent education. Um, and, uh, I studied electrical engineering, uh, with a focus on, um, chip design. And then I I also got an MBA. They had a Kentucky had a dual degree program where you got a bachelor's degree in, in the engineering discipline of your choice at the same time you got an MBA and it was a five-year program. So I went and did that, uh, did some co-op stints at Lexmark, the printer company, while I was there in Lexington. And um, and then uh, went down to work for Harris in Florida uh, on the Space Coast, as they call it, where all the you know NASA and Kennedy Space Center and all that stuff was at the time. And uh, did a lot of computer chip design and had a really good time with that started work on a master's degree in computer science down there with a focus on AI and um and this was actually probably like 2004 uh and I actually quit the program halfway through because I felt like AI was just not ready right at the time it was a lot of symbolic logic programming in lisp and um I stayed very interested in the field and connected to the field but ultimately decided you know when I left Harris and moved back to Kentucky uh, for a while that it just wasn't, um, you know, AI wasn't ready for prime time. So, moved back to Kentucky and worked for a couple of different companies there. Um, I, I, I bought a franchise for a while, which was a, you know, unusual career step. I didn't like it. So, I sold it back off. Um, what and then was I worked, the franchise? Uh, so, it was called Velocity Sports Performance. It was like uh, run faster, jump higher, you know, elite athlete training. Um, a lot of fun to run, uh, but not not that profitable. And uh, some, you know, some. I, I learned a lot about you know business models and management and stuff like that. And then I, um, I went for to work for a company called Stone Street One, uh, which built embedded wireless software. So um, that's where I got into sales engineering and business development. I learned a lot about sort of you know contract management and sales and stuff like that. Uh, and then I was one of the first employees at an online media startup that was based out of Louisville. And uh, we were making a bunch of like highly targeted online video content. And this was in 2008 2009 timeframe. So before it was cool to do, and uh, you know, we ran out of money because of the financial crisis at the time. And uh, but I learned a lot about fundraising from working directly for that CEO. And uh, that's when um, that's when I started BackUpify. Although the company, the company that went under, we had 15 employees uh, other than me and the founders uh, the two founders. And um, in the worst economy in 50 years, I was able to place like 12 of those people in uh, other jobs. It's what's kind of what I focused on at the time. It was one of my sort of proudest moments as a manager, because um, it was a lot of work, but um, but was able to find most of the people that worked for me jobs. And then uh, and then I went and started Backupify, which was initially a side project, but obviously turned into a pretty big
0: company. Um, but along the way, you were an early blogger.
1: Yeah, I started blogging in 2003, back when I worked at Harris. Mainly because I, uh, you know, I was sort of a geek and wanted to play around with software. There was software at the time called Movable Type. Um, every time you made a blog post, you had to recompile the whole site, <laughs> which was uh, you know, sounds nuts today, but that's how movable type worked. And um, you know, and I learned a lot about uh sort of getting you know media attention and how how things worked. And for a while, uh my blog had a page rank of seven because Google in the early days, you know, didn't adjust their page rank algorithm for blogs. And so as I got a lot of incoming links and blogs had a lot of links, uh, so, I, so I ran this little side business for a while where I would buy uh, websites, you know, that had a two or three page rank and just link to them and do nothing else, right? And just link to them for a couple of months, their page rank would go up and I'd sell them off for more money. Um, mm-hmm. That was a whole little uh, little side business. And uh, yeah, the blogging was fun and I used to write a lot. I mean, in the first five years, I wrote 3,700 posts on that blog. Oh.
0: and what, what type of, yeah, you know, what content?
1: Yeah, it was all about business and business news and things that were going on. You know, there weren't, um, when I started, the aggregators hadn't come out yet. There was no Reddit or or Dig or anything like that. Um, There was no Twitter. And so people looked to blogs for a lot of, so a lot of the posts were short, right? But um, people looked to blogs for a lot of that news at the time. Um, You know, related story to that, when Reddit came out, um, the thing that I tell tech people that actually I think they find most impressive, my username on Reddit is Rob, R-O-B. Wow, like I That's was super, super, yeah, I was super, super early and uh, super early user and have been on a long time. i ha- had never posted that much or used it very much. but um, but yeah, you know used to used to try all those tools. And so, yeah, I was an early blogger taught me a lot about and you, you know the way you get to be a better writer is by writing a lot, so I became a better writer. And um, and it really helped me when I went to raise money for Backupify, you know, Rob May is a relatively common name. Um, Robert May is the name of the guy who wrote Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and, and several other famous people have been named Robert May. And so I would go into the venture capital firms in, you know, 2009 and 2010. And, you know, they would ask the question like, how are you going to stand out? You know, it's hard to acquire customers. And I would say like, look, I would give them the statistics on the name, you know, Rob May. And then I would Google and I would say, look, like six of the first 10 links are me. And I will do this for the company as well. I know how to play this game. And I think that's part of the reason that part of the thing that actually helped me get, get financing. So
0: that is hysterical. So what brought you to Boston and, and what was the side project that morphed into Backupify? So when I started Backupify, I was actually trying to raise money for a different
1: company called Game Jazz. So as you know, like you and I talked about before we started the podcast, I'm a huge college basketball fan. And what I wanted was I wanted to be able to follow people's tweets about a certain basketball game without having to follow them all the other times on Twitter, right? Because like maybe I want to see all your tweets about the Kentucky Duke game, but I don't want to see all your other tweets for whatever you tweet the rest of the time. So we were building filters for that. And um, we were trying to raise money for that. And that was my focus. It's called Game Jabs. And I had built BackUpify as a side project because a friend of mine was like, um, a guy named Charlie O'Donnell out of New York. It was actually his idea. Yeah,
0: Brooklyn and, Bridge Ventures.
1: Yeah, Brooklyn Bridge Ventures. Yeah, Charlie. And and Charlie had basically was like, oh man, he's like, Yahoo bought Flickr. They're going to screw it up and lose my photos. I'd love a backup. And I was like, huh, backing up online content—that's interesting. So um, so we kind of built that uh, under the premise that um, you know it would be like a small side project. Uh, I took on a co-founder a guy named Vic Chada who, who still lives in louisville um Vic and I started building this out and um, and I sent it to Darmesh Shah because darmesh and I had never met in person. Hubspot was small Hubspot was like a year or two old at this point so it's still pretty small he had a lot more free time than he has today and I didn't send it to him for investment I just said like hey what do you think about like we had struck up a relationship online right for as early bloggers so i sent him the uh i sent him the thing and I was like hey play around with this. What do you think? And he emailed me back in like a day and was like, huh, this looks really interesting. Data is going to move to the cloud. That's a fact. Some percentage of those people are going to want to back up. That's a fact. Are you raising money for this? And I was like, no, no, I'm not. Whatever. But anyway, Darmesh became my first angel investor, um, wrote me a $25,000 oh. check when we had never met. Um, which as you can imagine, it provided a lot of legitimacy later when people would look and we had him on the website and they were like, oh, right. this dude in Louisville, Kentucky got this guy to invest. Like, okay, he's not a total, you know, bonehead. So, um, yeah. And so then we actually thought, you know, Backupify had a really rough first year. We had a consumer-focused market and we decided we were going to shut the company down. And um, and before we shut it down, we raised about another $75,000. So we'd raised about $100,000 altogether. And we were like, look, we, you know, we have like 2,000 customers is just not going to go anywhere. So let's shut it down. But in order to sell it, let's juice the number. So let's open it up and say it's free. Let's drop our paywall. And um, when we did that, we started working on selling it. We still didn't sign up a lot of people. But Tech Republic, a couple of weeks later, wrote about us dropping the paywall. We got picked up on TechNeme and we signed up like 10,000 people the next day. Mm-hmm. So suddenly it was like, a bunch of VCs started calling us, right? And we were like, wait, 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 this is interesting. Um, maybe we shouldn't sell this. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> we're gonna sell it for a couple hundred thousand dollars or whatever we could get for it. And um, so, uh, yeah, so then I got I got a call from, from First Round Capital, uh, Jason Kalkanis, some, some different people like that. Um, Simpson Yanov, who was at general catalyst at the time as a tech advisor, called me and, and pulled us into GC. And so in this whirlwind of like three weeks we ended up raising uh nine hundred thousand dollars which was considered a large seed round uh you know yeah. 12, 12 13 years ago so um and so the reason we ended up in boston actually wasn't because of gc it was um you know the the first round guys josh koppelman basically told me like look i I think you can build a company anywhere, but like you're going to need a lot of tech talents. So you probably need to be in some city that has a deeper tech bench than Louisville. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and, you know, look, you can find a handful of good engineers anywhere, but it is if you need to hire 30 or 40 or 50, it becomes harder in these smaller cities. So we basically looked for our CTO in New York, San Francisco, and Boston. I did searches in all three cities and I was going to move wherever we found our CTO. Um, and we found a guy named Matt Conway here in Boston uh, who turned out to be phenomenal CTO. And, um, yeah, that's, we moved the company up here. And so for, for a long time, I I did the whole like Boston conference circuit. It's like the one guy who didn't move to Silicon Valley. Right. (laughs) Right.
0: I remember that. that, that, Yes. So, yeah. 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 And that was fun times in the Boston tech scene. Just, just felt like all tides were rising boats together. Like everybody was just seemed very connected and it, it was just a special time. I remember it well.
1: Yeah, you had a little bit of a changing of the guard, I think, in terms of like, you'd had a wave of companies like, you know, Akamai and some of that, you know, that, that, that were sort of, you know, had matured and had gone public, um, you know, and DECA had sold. And then you had like, um, yeah, had HubSpot coming up and, you know, a bunch of companies like, you know, Convey and uh, you know, Shrava Sridhar and Hardy Maybaum and entrepreneurs like that. Nick Francis, who was here for a while with Help Scout, like we all kind of came up together in this cohort. Yeah. Um, you had some fresh energy around cloud and I think, you know, and Boston was, you'd had this like social media wave where Boston was kind of weak from like the late 2000s and then 2010s and the cloud wave was like a lot of hard engineering again, what Boston was good at. So there were a couple of things, you know, that made it a little bit of a revitalization of Boston. So it was a kind of exciting time to be
0: here. Yeah. So back up, if I ended up, it was really backing up Salesforce and Google app data, right? That's kind of where you put your yeah.
1: Yep, one one third of all data loss is user error. I still know that stat. And we we restored way more data than you would ever think. Um, and we, so yes, yeah, so we pivoted from away from consumer into the B2B side, starting with Google Apps. And, um, you know, had, a, had still had a little bit of rough time, but what actually helped us was when Google started focusing on Google Drive rather than just Gmail, that really drove a lot of reason for people to wanna to back up their apps because these documents were important. You're sharing them with different people. Um, you know, and for a lot of people, for legal reasons or just best practices, they wanted an independent backup. They didn't want to, excuse me, just rely on Google. So, yeah, so that company, you know, I had a pretty good exit. I mean, at the time, I we definitely sold way too early. We were doing about ten million in in revenue when we sold. And uh, I mean, that company, we did. It took us a while to get off the ground, but once we did, we did we did one point eight million, then we did four point three million, then the next year we did nine point eight million. So pretty wow. good revenue growth um and right there at that 9.8 10 kind of going into 10 we sold to datto and um, and uh datto continued to grow the company and you know when we i think when datto ipod um you know i don't remember what datto revenue overall was doing but they had done they had sold 4 million seats to backupify and so you know i think it was doing over a 100 million dollars for for datto as a product line
0: wow that is amazing
1: yeah, which was cool. We we should have we should have held on to it. But at the same time, part of the reason it grew so fast was Datto had this like incredible channel model where the right. managed service providers kind of took the products they were they were given. They had a lot of trust in Datto and the brand. And so um yeah, so that was uh that was cool. It was a
0: lot of fun. But in twenty fourteen, that was a big exit. <laughs> like in today's yeah, numbers, yeah, it's like, oh, oh, that was a nice, nice, you know, <laughs> double or whatever. But it, that was a home run, man. Yeah.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. We we the the net price when it all came out was a was a little over a hundred million dollars, and so I think we felt like wow, that was it was huge. Um, but you know,
0: so after Backupify, you went into becoming an investor, right? Yeah,
1: I, I I looked around, so I took some time off, and I looked around, and I said like, what technologies are going to happen next, and where do I want to build the next phase of my career? And I looked at. Blockchain, IoT, corporate messaging, and AI. You know, as we talked earlier, I had this thing for AI for a long time, and I'd seen some of the early progress that had happened in 2013, 2014, and I felt like something was happening there. Um, also, bought a lot of Bitcoin at that time, which I wish I'd held on to, but um, and I help, did hold oh, on to a little bit of it, but okay, but I, good. It was, was four hundred dollars a Bitcoin, and I. Um, but I spent a bunch of it, like experimenting, trying to figure out, like, how does this work as a payment system? So, like I bought a, I bought a plane ticket and a hotel room and some stuff on Expedia and shopped, you know, online with it. So those are some expensive purchases in retrospect. Um, <laughs> and so I, uh, so so I came away, you know, uh, so first I leaned into corporate messaging, right? Slack, Slack had just been born, and I think we all knew that, like, email was you needed something other than email. And um a guy named Ben Rogers and I built this tool with the idea was like it was going to change corporate messaging by asking the user to provide some information about why they were sending the message, right? Is this something where I need to reply? Is this just an FYI? Is this a response to a is this something I'm scheduling or whatever? And if if I could get them to just through a simple interface, give me a little more information about why they were scheduling the meeting or why they were sending the email or the message, I should say. Then um, the idea was we could sort it on the receiver side and easily prioritize your inbox, right? But rather than try to use a bunch of fancy algorithms to do it, we just tried to pin it back on the sender, right? Hey, give us a little more information here. Uh it turns out to be a really hard problem to solve because if you want to have threaded responses, it's like if you send me and two other people something because you need my reply and they're just FYI, and then they ask a question where they need your reply, like really quickly the whole system breaks down. So we tried a couple of iterations on it and ultimately decided to abandon that project. And so, so corporate messaging was out. Then I looked at IOT and I was like, yep, all kinds of stuff's going to be connected to the internet. It's going to be great. I don't know what to do with that. So I passed on that. So the more I read about blockchain, and this is still my view today, I think there's definitely some applications. I think you're going to see a lot more of it in the metaverse and, um, you know, stuff like that than you are in the real world. Like I don't buy all this like decentralized finance stuff. Um, I definitely don't buy the fact that it's going to democratize anything. I think it's just going to lead to a new ba- batch of big companies. But I ultimately came to the conclusion that like blockchain violates almost everything I believe about software. Um, you know, It's slower to develop. It requires consensus to move forward. Um, it's more expensive to run. It's slower than centralized systems. So that made me think that like, there'll be a couple of really big applications. Obviously cryptocurrency is one, but I just don't think you're gonna see the number of blockchain related applications explode. I mean, you have now because investors like it because you can get liquid early, but um, I think I think the early liquidity is what's driving it, not the, not the ultimate long-term use cases. Um, and so I landed on AI and I felt like AI was the place that had sort of 20 years that I could spend the next phase of my career. I started doing a lot of investing there. I started writing a newsletter that was AI-focused and um, was able to build up some expertise uh, and a really good portfolio. I've got about 108 investments now
0: um, between wow.
1: Angel and VC, and um, probably 85, 90 of them are AI-related.
0: So, I obviously was uh, spending some time listening to some other you know podcasts that you've been a part of, and I've been a longtime fan of Jason Calacanis. And uh, so so he he was obviously an investor in Backupify, but also yep. uh, you know, kind of shared with you some some foundational advice on on starting with the angel investing, right?
1: Yeah, it well it's interesting, right? Because when you uh, Boston has a different angel investing ecosystem than the West Coast, right? You know, I think people on the West Coast, even if let's say you walk away with a half million or a million or two million bucks, like people want to be a part of startups, they want to give back to the community, they want to they want to be in that class of angel investors, like they're likely to be pretty aggressive about how much of that they reinvest, right? Um, I think in Boston, you know, I think people that make sort of you know a couple million dollars are probably not gonna do any angel investing at all. And if they are, they're gonna put, you know, 5k into five deals a year for 25k total. It's like there's not very many people that are very aggressive, right? And so what happens is when I went and talked to a bunch of people about it. That were Boston-based. I consistently heard, basically, don't do it. Right? People would say, "Oh, I, I studied for a while, and I, I did it, and then I, you know, I did four deals, and I sat back and watch, and I got one of those deals is Walking Dead. It's not going anywhere. But it's not shutting down. Um, I got squashed out of another one. Another one got recapped, and then uh, the, the the last one's doing okay. But I'm gonna make two and a half times my money. It's just not worth the risk." But I was very fortunate that three of the best angel investors in the world were in backupify Darmesh Shah, Jason Kalkanis, and Chris Saka. And they all gave Saka me very too. Yeah, Saka was in and they oh. uh, they all gave me very interesting similar advice which was number 1 do a lot of deals, commit to doing 20 deals. And um and you know they'd all kind of say like look, if you do 15 deals and you're losing all your money like do five more deals, you're getting smarter, you're getting better. Second thing was um Find a strategy that gets you into good deals. You have to be known for something. It could be technical expertise, um, it could be check size. it could but but there's other ways. like if you don't have technical expertise or you don't have some market expertise, like be known as the person who'll make a decision in 20 minutes, right? or the person who'll wire you money, like I take syndicate risk, right? Like I'll wire money before the round's put together. And that's that's worked in my favor a couple times. Because when they when somebody gets a term sheet, sometimes the lead doesn't let a bunch of other angels in. So it's good to have already wired. Sometimes it doesn't work out. But you know, if you take the opposite and you're like a lot of angels do, where they want to wait around and see who's in, it's like you end up getting into the second tier deals, right? Those are the ones that still have room to fill up. So um, so yeah, so I was I was pretty aggressive and made a lot of investments, probably too much of a percentage of my net worth, but um it's it's paying off really well now. Um <laughs> That, and that led to some things, right? That led to me becoming a venture partner at Pillar, um, where uh, which is that that first Pillar fund is like just a phenomenal fund. When you guys see what the returns are going to be, it's, a, it's an incredible fund. And then um, that led to me, um, you know, when I left Tala, going to, uh, you know, PJC as a general partner was, you know, I, I had a lot of experience sourcing deals, um, you know, getting into deals, all that kind of stuff, which is, you know, 75% of a VC's job.
0: Yeah, it's building up that brand. I'm sure the, the the newsletter must have helped too, as far as building up the deal flow.
1: Yeah. It's part of the reason I have a lot, you know, only about a third of my deals are in Boston. I have deals all over the country. I have a lot on the West coast. Um, obviously I used to go out there, you know, six or eight times a year before COVID, but um, yeah, people would come in from the newsletter and, you know, we'd hop on a zoom call even pre COVID and, uh, or I'd see them on my next trip to California if I, or sometimes I'd be out there. And yeah, that led to a lot of, a lot of brand recognition and a lot of, um, a lot of good deal flow.
0: All right, so Tala, we kind of talked a little bit about that. So, what was Tala like? What was the whole idea? Yeah, behind so the
1: so the idea behind Tala was the idea that natural like we were a little too early. Natural language language processing, we thought, was going to sort of go through the same renaissance that machine vision went through. Um, that did happen. It happened a little bit later than our time frame, right? Um, but um, but the idea was to the initial idea was to build a chatbot that would sort of like gather knowledge inside a company. So that you could have a knowledge repository and all that it turns out to be hard to sell knowledge management tools. So we ended up going into the customer uh, support space, you know, which has been a good space for chatbots. Um, Talon did okay. The, the mistake that we made was we went really heavy up market, right? Which was we tried to build this really enterprisey product. And when you go to try to do customer supports for you know old life insurance companies and big manufacturing companies, and some of those people that were our customers we um, we ran into so many integration issues, like getting at their data sources, right? We, and, and having to integrate with systems that were old. And, you know, we spent about 18 months thinking we could get through it. And we could, you know, cause we didn't charge for that piece, right? We just thought we'll eat the cost because we need to figure this out anyway, but we never could really automate it. And we never could make the onboarding easy for those kinds of systems. So we talked a lot about going down market right to smaller companies that didn't have that many systems in place yet or were using more modern software stacks. Um and the board kind of decided we should stay up market and move to a more services model. And that's when I kind of went in and, you know, basically said, "Look, okay, I don't think I'm the right CEO to do this, right? To sell services, like my my style is to do something new, to evangelize, like I'm i'm very comfortable getting out there and like you know taking shots and criticism and have people say that our new thing is stupid i mean that was the story back up if i was for like three years people told me why it wouldn't happen even as we signed up more customers and uh, and how stupid it was and uh you know this is part of the game is like i have a pretty strong stomach for for taking that criticism so um so i just didn't really think i was the right ceo for it anymore um so we brought in um we brought in a different ceo for a while i went to become a partner. I stayed on the board, moved to become a general partner at PJC. Um, and then, uh, you know, and then and then Tala did okay, right? Like, so we ended up, we, when we kind of realized like, okay, it's not going to be this like massive outcome. We don't want to put a bunch more capital into it, but, you know, had a lot of revenue. We didn't necessarily want to shut it down. We had some really good, strong customers. We had a long-term relationship with Toast, who was an awesome customer. He saved them a lot of money um, on support over the years. And so we, we basically decided to merge with another company that was sort of in a similar spot. Um, and, uh, and, you know, the joint company has a stronger offering and is growing a little bit faster than we were standalone. So TBD, where that will land, um, you know, it's, it's not going to be a 10 Xer for the investors, but I, you know, I think it'll be a good, good, solid outcome.
0: All right. So you spent time at, at PJC. Yep. Um, what led you down the path of Dianthus? Like what was kind of the, uh, the thought process there?
1: Well, uh, so it was a couple things, right? um, I really liked the investing side. And I, I'll definitely go back to it at some point and I'll definitely continue to angel invest. Um, you know, I've even thought about, you know, building out ha- have a sort of old angelist syndicate that I might, you know, revamp and stuff like that. So like l- love sourcing deals, talking to entrepreneurs. Lo- and I, I really like what I really liked about investing was being able to sit on a board and lead around, right? And and kind of help shape the strategy a little bit more was a lot of fun. Um you know, you you don't really. Uh, Kent Bennett from Bessemer gave me some great advice, which was, you know, people who are former operators don't make money fixing companies. And so, you know, that's a it's a hard thing to learn to look at a company where you're like, oh my gosh, I could step in and run this thing, and I know exactly what to do with it. Um, but what I so what I so I I didn't make that mistake. Um, I didn't invest in companies like that. But what I do like about it is, you know, there's a lot of entrepreneurs out there who just they don't have the right experience yet and to be able to like give them a framework for like, Hey, why don't you think about it this way? Uh, and then like they can kind of take it and run with it. Right. And so, you know, you can be like this catalyst, you know, you, you don't do a lot of work directly on the companies always as a VC, unless they're in a crisis mode. Um, but just that ability to be a catalyst here and there, uh, you know, a sounding board for entrepreneurs, which is super hard to be a startup CEO. It's like way harder than most people understand. Um, and, uh, you know, and so I really, really enjoyed that, and being able to write bigger checks, you know, million, million and a half bucks, and um, you know, and kind of, kind of lead the board and everything else was a lot of fun. So anyway, we were uh, PJC was, you know, thinking about the next fund, and um, I was thinking about my 2021 investment hypotheses, and obviously I was the AI and robotics guy, and so I, you know, I was looking at machine learning tools for e-commerce, and. I really came away, you know, one of the things you think about as an investor when you look at a new technology is, you know, technology comes in layers, right? We think about the technology stack and where is the value going to accrue? So a very famous example of this would be the Union Square Ventures post on blockchain, right, which is, hey, instead of acquiring value, uh, accumulating value at the application layer in blockchain, it's going to accumulate at the protocol layer. And here's why. Um, but you, you think about that with any tech stack, right? If you think about, you know, if you looked at somebody that was building some component of a mobile device, right, of an iPhone or an, or an Android phone, you would say, well, what? How much value is going to accrue to the camera or to the operating system or to the apps on there or to the phone itself, right? The hardware manufacturer. Um, and what you want to really invest in as a VC is whatever layer of the stack is going to provide, you know, twenty-five percent of the. You know, uh, of the work, but capture sixty percent of the value, right? Um, you have all these content creators who Google captures their value in search, right, and and driving traffic to them, or, or now Facebook or whatever. And so, so I was thinking about a lot of that, and I came to the conclusion that the machine learning tools for e-commerce, um, while there's massive, massive opportunity because e-commerce is more quantitative and more algorithmic than ever before, and that's just going to get more and more that way. Um, most of the most of the value is not gonna accrue to these machine learning tools. And the reason it wasn't gonna accrue to the tools is because if I can sell you a machine learning model that will say, help your pricing or couponing or discounting or something like that, and it leads to an extra $3 million in revenue, what do I get paid for that as a provider? Maybe $6,000 a year, maybe 10, maybe 20 if it's good um meanwhile you made another 3 million dollars right which you know typical sort of EBITDA margins on e-com might be another five, six, seven hundred thousand dollars 700,000 for you so um so it felt like you'd rather be you'd rather be a e-com company that's smart about AI and accrue the value there rather than the software now obviously there's pros and cons to that right the problem with e-com is it's a very hype driven cycle so you may have a product that's a hot product for 2 years and then goes away but if you're going to aggregate some of those, you sort of get rid of. The, have the portfolio effect, right? So you you you're not you're not relying on any single brand. So um, so I went back to the partnership and I was like, hey, I don't think we should invest here. It's a huge opportunity as a market, but like I just think these software companies not only are they not going to capture the lion's share of the value, but the other problem is they're hard to implement if you're not technical. And ecom hasn't generally attracted like all the best and brightest, sharpest tech people, right? So, you don't have these people that are just like driving these AI solutions through these companies. And a lot of small brands, even you know, 5, 15, even $30 million e-com brands, they outsource a lot of their tech or maybe they have one or two people and those people aren't thinking about how to sort of like drive machine learning through all the e-com stuff. So anyway, for a lot of reasons like that, we decided not to invest in the space. But then I came across as part of my research like Thrasio and Perch and some of these, um, you know, Amazon FBA aggregators. And we started to talk about, well, what if we built all the software for all this? Because there's huge opportunities to apply this software in, in e-com, but we bought the companies instead. And we just said, now you're going to work this way. You're going to work on our software. So PJCC did the company with a couple of angel investors and I still didn't think about leaving, right? I was just going to sort of shepherd the thing along, sit on the board. And I just fell in love with it, right? Like it's just such a massive opportunity, it's so much fun. And I realized that the skill set that I bring to the market right now is if you look at the skill set you need to build a company like this, right? You have to understand AI deeply enough, you know, not not to necessarily be like writing code all the time, but like understand what's possible and what's feasible you have to understand how to acquire businesses and you know divest businesses and value businesses um, and then you have to understand how to you know build a company and then you have to understand how to um you know how to apply this machine learning to business problems which i've you know i've made all these investments i've seen what works and what doesn't um i've seen where it's underapplied and so uh so i just felt like i could really provide a lot of value to this company so went into the company um, full time uh well, last summer I had this sort of conversation with the PJC team of like, I'm kind of falling in love with this. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, and um, uh, and you know, David Moderano has been great um, about saying, like, hey, I hate to lose you, but like if this is what you want to do, we're an investor, go make us a ton of money, right? So um so so I joined as CTO. We hired a, a CEO, first CEO didn't work out. Um, and um for just you know ver- various reasons. And uh, so I was the interim CEO for a while, which I really didn't want to do again, because when you're CEO, having done it twice, you get bogged down in a lot of people management. You get away from the product. You get away from the tech. A lot of your job becomes, you know, just dealing with all the all the stuff that happens when two employees don't get along or two different departments have different views on what should happen with something. And uh, it's very extra focused job with a lot of a lot of investor management and relations, stuff like that. And uh, I really didn't want to do all that again. So we had added a guy named Chris Lister to the board. Chris is a longtime friend of mine. He was an advisor to uh, Backupify in the early days, you know, and, and there's a couple of things that Chris had that were interesting. Number one, he loves scaling, right? That's he, he doesn't start companies. He doesn't come in at two, three, five million. He comes in at like 10 million plus when you're laying the groundwork to scale. Um, Number two, he loves the people stuff, and he is a phenomenal people manager. Uh, people love working for him. He has mentored many people who now run companies and are senior executives all over Boston um, and has obviously had a lot of success. But the other thing that I think not a lot of people pick up on is he was at constant contact at a time when SaaS metrics were new. So he was a pioneer of, okay, we're not measuring bookings and downloads because nobody downloads our software and they pay monthly. Like, how do we think about this business? So he was one of the early people working on that stuff, right? And and teaching investors and employees, hey, no, 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 think about it. I know you've thought about it this way for 15 years. Think about it this way now, which is what we need, right? Because we need to figure out how how's the ai impacting the business how are we um how are our predictive models doing are we automating more than we you know than we have been before and how does that translate into key business metrics so chris and i have been friends a long time we'd added him to the board and uh, he kind of said hey uh, i know you talked about maybe me joining full time down the road but you know we had acquired a couple of companies we were already 15 million in revenue and uh, he said what would you think about me joining now um and i was like yes absolutely and uh, and so that's how sort of Dianthus came to be, and I, you know Dianthus was like I said we did we did fifteen million in, in twenty um, twenty one, and we'll do we'll end the year at about hundred million annualized in twenty twenty two, and so that fifteen million will grow to about 27, 28 and then we'll acquire roughly seventy, um, you know, and it's interesting because in this business like it's different than the FBA models because the integrations are harder. You know, when Amazon runs a bunch of your business, there's a limited amount of stuff that you have to move over. We have to move over a lot of stuff. We're focused on Shopify and WooCommerce, but people are using all kinds of different systems on the back end, um, and uh, a lot of them have custom apps and everything else. But again, getting good at that is, um, you know, as part of our core competency, and um, and so. Uh, it's part of the reason we stayed out of FBA as well is because if you, you know, Amazon gives you a lot of tools out of the box to manage your business. But if you really want to go heavy on machine learning, you need that first party data and that interaction with the customer. And so I think we'll be, you know, I, we're going to grow a little bit slower in the, you know, first sort of year and a half, two years, I think, than some of the aggregators did. But I ultimately think we'll be more successful longer term. I mean, time will tell. Uh, we'll see. But I, I think our model is, um, I think our model is going
0: to be stronger. I think you're earlier to market in the shop up Shopify and WooCommerce areas, like the Amazon world. It just seems like there are a lot of aggregators have been concentrating on that.
1: Yeah, there's only a couple of people doing Shopify right now. Um, yeah. You know, the big one would be Open Store, which is Keith Raboy's company. Um, right. They have a very different approach. For us, they're very focused on the valuation of the stores and kind of take anything. We're we think of ourselves more. We don't really think of ourselves as an aggregator. We think more like a traditional e-commerce company. We have a merchandising function. We'll come up with new products. Um, and all that kind of stuff, but always with the eye towards how can AI help with this? So what's the plan
0: in terms of growth plans ahead as far as you know hiring for the company?
1: Yeah, so we've hired um, uh, we've hired a ton of people. So we're about one hundred ten people worldwide now um, and about probably twenty of those are in Boston. We have offices in New York. We have office in Louisville, Kentucky, and we have a manufacturing facility in China. Um, and, uh, and so we're hiring across all the offices, particularly machine learning and, and, um, and AI related stuff, uh, but also a lot of marketing and merchandising, which are the core functions that we need for most of the brands that we acquire. Um, you know, from the AI side, we that team is about, if you look at everybody that's accepted but hasn't started, maybe that team's like 11, 12 people, you know, right now and are probably more than double by the end of the year and we have projects we have machine vision projects we have nlp projects we have um you know analytics projects uh we have a lot of automation projects so a lot of our uh, a lot of our work to acquire companies is heavily automated and um, as a result our MA team can be smaller and leaner than what you see at the competitors because we automate so many of the tasks some of the diligence uh and so yeah you know we're we're very interested we have we have to find some interesting people though right we we need the kind of people that you're like uh, can, can, you dig into financial and legal documents and tell us, you know, uh, diligence information about this? So a human doesn't have to look at it is the kind of problem we're trying to solve. Or like we have a, um, you know, one of the tools we built, we call the brand manager assistant makes a bunch of recommendations cross-channel, um, and generates a bunch of advertisements automatically for a lot of brands. So we'll plug in your Google apps, uh, Google AdWords will plug in your Facebook data. We'll suck all that in and crunch the numbers on it. And then we will use natural language processing to try to write better ads. Um, so we, we do a lot of automated content creation and uh, it's just, it's, it's a ton of fun. It's like a playground for AI and um, but, it, but, but we're not off building researchy stuff. It's like stuff that really moves the needle on the business is the goal. And so it's just, it's really fun to sit in meetings where we're trying to figure out like, how do we automate this? How do we automate that? What should we tackle next? Um, and it's just, it's just, we're, we will start releasing some metrics at some point this year. And it's, uh, the, the impact is, is pretty awesome.
0: Well, I was happy to see that you, uh, in, in previous companies, I, I knew you gave a very unique company holiday off and I was glad it carried over to Diantha. So as you noted, you are a big basketball fan and the first Thursday and Friday is a day off for Diantha's employees of March madness, right? <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, when I was you know early in my career, I would always take those as vacation days because the games start at noon and they go until you know nine or ten o'clock at night. Just four basketball games on all the time, and um, and so I always loved it. And so yeah, when I had my own company, I thought, well, I should just make these holidays. It turns out it it sticks out right. Like you're you're always like hiring is very difficult for tech companies, and you want to be a little unique. And when you tell people that, even if they're not basketball fans, they remember it as like, wow, this was this quirky company that gives March Madness off as a holiday. So if you have you know six job offers, uh, at least we we stay top of mind and and you know it's it's good to hire hire eccentric people into companies a lot of times and so if you have a little bit of an eccentric holiday plan, I think it I think it helps.
0: Like so, so what have been like the biggest lessons learned? You've built multiple companies now. You've been on the investing side, which I think adds as a benefit of helping you build another company. So what's been the, like the biggest lessons learned throughout these different entities?
1: Um. Wow. You know, I think there's a lot. Um, one is, I think I think so many people in the ecosystem, both the startup ecosystem and the venture capital ecosystem, consistently miss the power law effect, right? Like they know cognitively that it works that way, that your winners drive, you know, all your returns. Um, but they don't invest that way, their time or their money, right? You know, people, people are still looking for more for sure thing. They're looking not to lose money you know they're looking not to go to a company that might go bust um and i just i think that's a mistake i think you got to take some risks and some gambles um if you want to want the chance to win big uh, so i think i think that's a big one i think probably one of the most unique lessons is the fact that a lot of times your really star talent uh has people that are like the top half of 1% in a lot of what they do particularly in tech the resumes a lot of times resemble the people in the bottom 10%. They've been all over the place. Like when I see a resume, it's like they're all over the place. It's like, what are you doing? What are you trying to figure out? There's a really good chance it's like somebody that, you know, can't focus and can't keep a job, or there's a chance sometimes they're a brilliant polymath who's like bored at a lot of places, right? And so you have to interview those people. And I think a lot of times those people don't get interviews. Uh, and, and, and so um, it's, you know, for the companies that I run, I always encourage managers hey, make 10% of the companies, 10% of the candidates that you interview should be people that don't meet the job requirements. Um, And that's a way to sort of gut check, are your job requirements accurate, right? Because everybody's, you know, five years experience on this, seven years in that, must know these skills. Like, I don't know, your best people can figure out almost anything pretty quickly. So I I think some of those things are a little overrated. Um, So I think that's important. I, th- I think understanding that your financing plan, I, I, pe- people sort of raise financings in certain ways and try to compare themselves to other people. You really, it's, it's really different for every company, right? How fast you should go, what you need. When people say like, what's an average burn rate, like, eh, depends on what you're doing and what you're trying to do. Uh, and, and so I think some companies need to burn a lot of money and they need to do it aggressively, maybe on the tech side, maybe on the COGS side, maybe on the customer acquisition side. Uh, and, and other ones shouldn't and should stay lean. And so, so I I think people spend too much time trying to adhere to like, I'm a lean startup person, or I'm a go big or go home person. And I I think you really need to figure out about the opportunity and the team you can put together and sort of construct your, the way you build your company needs to match the market opportunity, your capabilities and the, the team that you can put together and where they can, you know, your fundraising capabilities and everything else. And so, um. Yeah, I don't know, I mean, I could I could probably, I don't have the patience, I don't think, to write a book, but I could probably write a book like a lot of people do on all the lessons I've learned and mistakes that I've made and uh, and everything else. I, last thing I would say, and this is just for entrepreneurs listening out there that I think about now is really having great mentors and people who uh, who who try to teach you and coach you and don't always beat you up. I, you know, I had this guy on my board at Backupify, Ralph Foltz, and I can't tell you how many times Ralph would say like, don't do this thing. And I would go do it anyway, because I thought he was wrong. And when he turned out to be right, and I came back and was like, "Okay, now I'm in a bad spot." He would never, he would never waste time saying like, "I told you so," or like giving me a lecture. He'd always be like, "Okay, we are where we are. How do we move forward, and how do we solve this, right?" and and get out. And so, you know, I think I think when you take money from investors, the one thing, the only thing you know for sure is that you will have to have difficult conversations with them at some point. Some bad things will happen. Your your biggest customers will cancel. Your key employees will quit. A financing will fall through. And so, one of the questions you want to ask yourself is: Okay, when I have to deliver that call to that investor, are we going to have a productive conversation or an unproductive conversation? Because if they're just going to be critical and yell at you, even if you deserve it, um, it's just not gonna. this not going to be a great use of your time. You want people that are have a strong stomach for this stuff, and you know, are going to be solutions oriented and, and move forward.
0: Well, something else that I took away from this conversation is like you must be really good at networking because at an early. You know, stages of Backupify to get Chris Saka, um, Josh Koppelman, Dharmesh Shah, Jason Calacanis, like these names of like investors that have done extremely well and they're, you know, operators too. So, and then you talk about uh, Chris Litster, who's amazing, Ralph Foles, who's amazing, like these these people that have been intertwined in your career. Uh, Like, so I think that's a key component. Like, surround yourself with amazing people, like, not just employees. It's the people around you from investors and mentors.
1: Yeah. And it's, it's interesting, right? Because I think people want, I think the key to networking is actually do something like not just go to networking events. I think a lot of people think, Oh, I'll go to these events and I'm going to talk to people and that's how I'm going to meet them. But, but I, I always encourage people to like write or read or do like just do something to stand out. I mean, like, look, you do a podcast. So, you know, like, there's a big difference between calling somebody and be like, Hey, we should catch up and have coffee. And they're like, maybe. Right. Whereas like, do you want to be on my podcast? Like podcasts are fun to do as a guest, right? You get to answer questions about what you know about. They're fun to do as a host. Cause you get to meet a lot of people and learn a lot. And like, and, and there's very few people who like are going to say no, right. They're going to try to squeeze it in. And so I think, you know, doing some podcasts, uh, writing something, writing your opinions, like, I can't tell you how much stuff I've written that's wrong or bad, or even company ideas I have that didn't go anywhere. I mean, we talked about the corporate messaging thing earlier. Like nobody remembers any of that stuff really, right? They tend to remember the stuff you did that works. And so if you write 20 bad blog posts, but, um, you know, you write one good one that makes the way that, that makes somebody like a, like a Ralph Fultz or go, you know, think like, wow, this guy's interesting. and has some interesting ideas. Uh, it just, it makes you stand out. And so I always encourage people like try to stand out, run a group, start a club, do a podcast, write a newsletter, and then, and then just stick with it. Like, I know it sucks, man. I write, you know, I write the say I newsletter and sometimes it's like, uh, sometimes it's like, I'm out on a date on like a Saturday night and I'm like, I know this sounds lame, but like, I got to get home and write my right. newsletter for Sunday morning. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's, uh, it, but it's but sticking with it and trying not to miss more than a couple weekends a year um, is, uh, even when I know, and nobody who reads it reads everyone, right? And that's not my expectation, but people stay subscribed to it. I mean, it's got 30,000 subscribers, right? And they stay subscribed because if, if one out of 10 catches your eye and like four times a year you get something interesting from it, it's worth having it in your inbox, right? And so I just, so much of doing this is just consistency and sticking with it. And that really leads, I think, to better networking.
0: I, I, I got to double down on that, Rob, because that's VentureFizz was a side project. I was at Headhunter Head running my search firm, doing great. I was like, I keep tabs of who's getting funded, what events you go to, and jobs. And I share that with job seekers and candidates. Like, I just put this on a website. I don't know. Like, maybe yeah. people find it useful. And next thing you know, VentureFizz started to develop into what is now my full-time, you know, self-sustaining business model. So you never know where those little meaningful put information out there so that other people can benefit where that is going to lead to. So I agree. Yeah, yeah.
1: And it also shows it just it also shows the people like because I mean, you know, because you went through straddling both worlds for a while. Right. And it's hard. It's like, you know, people have kids, they have jobs, they have everything else. And to do these side projects, they become time consuming. You just got to find a way to make it work and stick with it. And it'll normally become your full time thing, I think.
0: Exactly. Well, Rob, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through all the great stories you shared, all the great advice. There's definitely a lot to take away from this one. So thanks for your time. Thanks for having me.